Joining me today, I am very excited. He is the co-host of the Scottish Libertarian Podcast, author of The Universal Basic Income For and Against, Anthony Samaroff. Anthony, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. It's going great. Thanks, John. Good to join you. Thanks for having me. Hey, it, the, the pleasure is all mine. I've, um, you know, up until about a week, uh, week ago, I didn't know too much about you. I'd come across some of your work at the Mises Institute and everything like that. I'd heard you on a podcast or two, but um, tell me. What? You mean you, you hadn't followed and read everything I've ever written and listened to all 170-ish episodes of the Scottish Liberty podcast? I, I can't not. believe it. This is an affront to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did I did start reading your book today though and I, I really oh, enjoyed wow, the, okay. the universal basic all, income. All, all all is all is forgiven in that case. <laughs> so what's going on with you? Because I know you're from Scotland. Yeah. Um well I'm staying in Florida at the moment. Before that, I was a few weeks in Mexico. Do you want to know something really crazy? You can't actually enter the USA from the UK if you're if you're not a US citizen, but you can enter it from Mexico. So basically you could fly to, you need, you need to, you're not allowed to have been in the UK within two weeks. So you could basically fly to Mexico from the UK, go to a big COVID party, catch COVID, and then get into the USA without a test, but you're not allowed to just fly straight from Scotland. So um, I spent a few weeks in Mexico on a yoga retreat actually, um, I, I uh, yeah, things are a little bit more open. I also really don't like the Scottish weather, so that's one thing you can know about me. I, I I'm I'm practically a snowbird here in uh, Florida at this time. I feel you. I'm I'm actually from Chicago, but I've been right. down in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, for basically the last like four or five months since July. Wow, amazing! I didn't know that you were in. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Our mutual friend mentioned that you were in Mexico. Whereabouts in Mexico is that? I'm in Puerto Vallarta, so it's on the uh, the Pacific side, sort of. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, it's in Jalisco, the state of Jalisco. Okay. Maybe uh, a few hours from, about four hours from Guadalajara. Is that um, is that north, central, or south? <laughs> it it's central. It's well, such a big country as well. I mean, I didn't even realize how big it was until I I visited, and then you saw. Um, uh, you know, I'm looking at maps and things like that. It's the first time I've ever been to sort of Central America. I've never been to South America either. Um, I've only ever been to the States, I guess. So on this side of the Atlantic. So it's, it's, it was quite, well, how do you find the culture in Mexico? I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I've been coming down here for about 12 years now. And I, just the, the lifestyle, the people, there's something about just how much joy they find in the the most oh. simplest things in life and i'm you know i'm drudging through the nine to five in chicago in cold weather right. just being miserable all the time and and harping on like the smallest things and they're making me angry all the time yeah and it's yeah. the exact opposite down here oh they're much more carefree yes much more carefree yes uh, much more open. I mean, this has been probably the best three, three, four months of my life to be, to be quite honest with you. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, I, I need some of that care freedom in my life uh, as well. So I'm actually going back um, around the 3rd of January for a month. I'm just trying to stay away from Scotland. Don't get me wrong. I love Scotland, but I love Scotland like April, May, June, July, August, September, sort of maybe October. Uh, when it's uh, at a temperature that is tolerable and people are out and happier. Uh, I think that the weather in the winter really has a grim, grim effect in people's moods. Plus Scotland's really locked down, whereas um, where I've been in Flo Florida, Mexico, relatively open, like, you know, there was cafes open, restaurants open, yeah. and what have you. Where, where in Mexico did you do your retreat? It's in Mazunte, which is... A lot, apparently quite a lot of people go there as a tourist destination, which is funny because it's not really, it's not really that big. It, it certainly wasn't touristy when I was there, but apparently when I go in January, it will be because everyone goes down to 
down during these months to escape the winter. I'm not the only one with that idea, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And what, so what was it like in Scotland during the, the lockdown? How bad was it? Well, it's quite an interesting thing. It's like during the first weeks, I was like, oh, you know, I, I was like, satirically posting on on facebook like if you don't enjoy the lockdown like you don't enjoy your own company or you know and stuff like this like i i regret now because because i thought it was only going to be like a couple of weeks i didn't agree with the lockdown but i was kind of joking being like you know the the worst thing about the lockdown is we can't go out for a pint to celebrate it you know i was just kind of like being a troll and now i'm like oh god i can't believe it because um I thought at most it would be for a couple of months. Around the summer, they did start opening up. It was really cool because they dragged tables outside because they had rules about capacity. Um, they dragged tables outside bars that had never had outdoor seating. And everyone was sitting outside uh, on the sidewalk. Um, you know, you could have a pint of cider, beer, glass of wine, whatever you're into, uh, mojito. And I was really, really enjoying my social life when things opened up again. Then I had a special visitor um, and at the end of her stay, they started started to lock down again. Um, they started stopping uh, restaurants opening after 6.30, just like before I left. And I was like, do you know what? I'm so glad that I'm, I'm getting away from here because it's just kind of like a depressing predicament to be in i mean there's only so many times you can go out and walk around the block to keep your sanity and the uh, and actually they were saying uh, at the beginning of the lockdowns you were you were mandated you're only allowed to have one walk for exercise and one walk to go and get your shopping groceries as you call them um in the u.s uh like you're at weren't actually meant to leave the house more than twice a day go figure so um i don't know I, I I can't believe that this has gone on for as long as it is. And I can't believe how willing people are and um, how, how people are cheering for the destruction of their own lives. Yeah, that, that was one of the, the biggest surprises to me as well. I thought, you know, once the weather got nicer, summertime, people would be resisting this a lot more. Right. And man, they they are perfectly willing to just sit at home like vegetables waiting for, I don't know, a vaccine or somebody on TV to tell them that they can resume their life again. It's just incredible to me. Yeah. And um, the hatred that you get for having a contrary point of view is breathtaking. I mean, even I, I got flamed a fair bit just for posting the details on people who are, who are dying from other things than COVID. Like, um, so I, I'm thinking, like, I, I, what is it? Like, do are, if one thing is people are afraid, I, I'm sure. But the, the few, I, it's, it's confusing to me that people who consider themselves like anti-establishment, I, I know it was a different left from when, when I grew up, like, when I grew up is getting further and further away, but you know, the, the left was all like, fuck the government and stuff like that. And now it's like, the left is like, whatever the government says is good. And like, um, I'm bewildered, um, uh, you know, to the lack of the lack of skepticism, especially because this has been going going on for so long. Another thing is they, you know, the government's giving people checks in the in, in the UK. They were putting people on furlough and things like that. So I know, in a sense, one they're being bribed, and there's some kind of there's some amount of people who would probably prefer to stay at home and collect a check than uh, go out to work. Not everyone though, and then but there's also uh, the main thing is. If you just shut down the economy, but you didn't let people work, then, you know, they'd starve. But because they're given these, this magic printed money, people don't actually know what the economic effects of this are because they're being pushed off into the future with their uh, magic printed money. So I don't know. I mean, I'm bewildered at how much people are willing to tolerate. What are you, what do you think? Yeah. Well, it, Why, at least in the, in the U S the the left has just gone 
completely bonkers in my opinion. And it is amazing that they've gone from being, you know, anti, anti the man to cheering them on. And I think that at least within the last few years, it's really gotten bad because of Donald Trump. Mm. Because he was, I mean, he was like at the head of the executive branch or whatever, but anybody that was within the main establishment of uh, our government that was anti-Trump, the left would automatically cheer on. So if somebody from like the, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi or something like that, or a CIA operative starts trashing Trump, they'll cheer them on. So they think that they're resisting the government by being very anti-Trump, but, but he's just one person within this huge apparatus. And the, the rest of the apparatus that's going after that one guy, they're all of a sudden cheering him on. And it's, it, it really was something impressive to see. I, 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 mean, I don't know. I'm almost at a loss for words to yeah. describe like what has been going I on with... Um, the, the left in America. Now, I don't know much about the left over in Scotland. Is it pretty common? Oh, well, they're just kind of taken. Uh, Scotland's more left than Britain is, than England is. It's like, um, it's pretty social justice warrior in places and very, you know, being a socialist is seen as a good thing in Scotland, definitely amongst young people. And that's always been the case, even when I was at university. But it was a different left. I feel like they had a different character. Um, obviously, during the war on terror, during the Bush years, the war on terror was center of the bullseye and the surveillance state. You know, they were complaining about detention without trial and stuff like that. But um, that's nowhere near the center of the bullseye anymore. It's all identity politics. And definitely, I guess, they're economically to the left. But it's weird because you know we have a conservative conservative government and they claim to hate the tories um the uh, and then we have another parliament in scotland where i thought uh, the the first minister sounded like a dictator when she was on tv saying what uh, you know telling us what's what and what the measures were going to be which by the way were passed unilaterally without a vote in parliament because they gave her extra powers to deal with this. So she could just basically unilaterally dictate. Not that, you know, we love, you know, democracy or parliamentary democracy or it's a perfect system, but they usually put up a pretense of of actually having a democratic process. Um, You know, the state usually tries to validate itself by these democratic process, but all of that's gone out the window. No one seems to notice. No one seems to care. It's it's um, it's very bewildering, especially when you you know when I'm looking at the data and I'm seeing the lockdowns. You you look at all the places that locked down and to varying degrees, and all the places that didn't lock down. There seems to be no correlation whatever between lockdown and COVID deaths. And we don't even know if the COVID deaths are the real COVID deaths because, you know, as we've heard, they're counting anyone who's died with COVID as of COVID, as having died of COVID. You know, we don't know anything. And and the thing is, people, if you didn't, it, I've heard people say, if you weren't watching the media, you wouldn't even know that there was a pandemic going on. That's how, I don't know if that's true or not. The thing is, no one knows if anything's true because it's all like smoke and mirrors. But what we do know is that um, it, what we're being, what the authorities are saying, is not congruent even with their own figures. So you would think, in this, it's like you're living in an episode of the Twilight Zone where everyone's just pretending that reality is not as it is. That, that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, the same thing with the mask mandates. You, you've probably seen those charts where it's like, you, you can't tell where the mask mandate went into effect. Everything, there's no correlation between that and the spreading of the virus. And you can do it within just states or countries. And nobody seems to be, nobody seems to care about it. They just keep, you know, parroting that yeah. wear a mask, follow the science. And- and if you say that, they attack you. If you just say, well, look at the charts, there's no correlation between mask wearing and um, 
you know, uh, mask mandates and, you know, they, they flame you. I know that people are resistant to changing their opinion. I mean, I think that's the thing that really scares me about the future is because people have a lot of opinions that are going to be forming policy. It's not the fact that people have wrong opinions. It's the fact that when you present people with better information, they don't go, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, let me see. Let me look into that. They, they get angry at you. This scares me. It's, it's a bizarre reaction. I mean, they get so emotionally invested in, in this lockdown, in the virus. And I guess maybe at this point, now that they're, what, nine months into this, they can't, they can't bring themselves to, to admit that they were wrong. Um, it, it really is pretty unbelievable. There are places, though, to your point where you could go outside and if you we weren't watching the news, you wouldn't know that there was a pandemic. There is a surf town that's about an hour from where I am. And I've been going there like almost every weekend because it is like COVID does not exist there. There, There's no um, no masks like to go into restaurants or anything like that everybody's just having a good time surfing. They're going to the beach. They're eating at restaurants. They're going to bars. They're talking to people. And it, it is like a, a time capsule back to just a year ago <laughs> where life used to be normal. What's it like where you are? It's a little more, um, little more strict with um, these idiotic policies that they come up with. Like my building here, I have to put the mask on when I walk through the lobby um, they take your temperature if you go to like the grocery store and you got to wear a mask everywhere. Things like like the regular protocol that they that seems to be pretty normal, I guess, across across the globe. But everything's open now. So, um, okay. yeah, I mean, you can do anything you want. You just at some places you have to put a mask on when you walk through the first 10 feet and then apparently you're OK. Um, they did try to, they did a two week thing where they closed everything at eight 30. Uh, that was like a month ago. Um, and I think it was just, it was around like Halloween and Dia de los Muertos. And I think it was just their excuse for trying to control that. So they did like another two week, we're going to close things down temporarily. Um, and that's when I started going to that surf town a lot more. <laughs> Right. Okay. And what are you here? Like, do you get any exposure to regular people and hear their views on things, COVID or necessary or anything? Yeah. So I've, I've met, I've actually met a few anarchists down here, which has been, which was very surprising because normally um, I, I, I just run into like um, either locals or Canadians or something like that. And to, to run into people that are, that are very anti, I mean, I guess it's because of the situation. Like they came down here for the same reason I did to sort of get away from all this. Um, but you do get, you do see people, you know, that are walking, walking down the street, wearing a mask with the face guard and the goggles and everything like that. So it's, we got it all down here. Um, there's a, a wide variety of people there. Are, there's a much older population around here too. That, that come down and they retire down here. So they're a little more um, careful ab about the virus and things like that. Um, it, it's interesting. It's, it's, very, it's a very eclectic mix of people. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. And um, what kind of things, what kind of conversations do you find yourself getting? Um, are you on social media? Do people infuriate you in social media with their ill-informed positions or are you in a sort of libertarian echo chamber as we you, see if you don't start in a libertarian echo chamber you end up ending up in one anyway because the people who don't disagree with you eventually get in an argument with you and delete you or vice right. versa yeah well I, I definitely follow a lot of non-libertarians um i try to avoid getting into like twitter spats and things like that yeah um, I, I've done it a few times and it's just, it's sort of like playing a uh, handball against the curtain or something. It's just very unsatisfying. You never really get anywhere and you just get frustrated. Um, so I basically just use social media to promote the podcast and, and post memes and things like that. That's about it. 
Right. Okay. Yeah, that's wise. I try and avoid getting into discussions. It was really useful when I first became a libertarian because you help re you help um, come against objections and refine your opinions and hear where people are coming from. But you know, after a few years, you've usually heard people's objections to most of your positions. So it's it's not like you're typing it out going oh I'm really learning from having to reply to this it's more like you know I've typed this out before yeah yeah and you came for you came to libertarianism from the left right yeah yeah what was did you have like a, a red pill moment where you everything sort of clicked into place or was it a gradual process for you I guess there was a red pill period that that kicked off a gradual process. Okay. So one of the things, definitely a catalyst was sort of Ron Paul being anti-war because I'd never seen it. I thought, you know, if you're on the right, you're anti-war. And if you're on the left, you're sorry, if you're on the right, you're pro-war. And if you're on the left, you're against the war and against the surveillance state and what have you. And that was uh, normal. And then, he, so, so just having a conservative that was really against the war and then a bunch of, I had a YouTube channel where I was, I didn't put out a lot of videos, but I was sort of putting out some videos from what you'd say, maybe a progressive perspective. I wouldn't say it was like hard left. I, I believed in a market economy. I just thought it should be very regulated and there should be lots of social services. So, you know, I don't know, maybe the stereotype of Denmark or Sweden. Um, uh, like, so... From that, uh, I had a bunch of libertarians gatecrash my videos and send me here and there. And I wasn't an easy sell, but I think over over the course of a year or two, I just kind of went down that rabbit hole watching lots of videos and my uh, position migrated. Whereas uh, I, I kind of remember there used to be a meme that said, I used to be a minarchist until I ran out of excuses. And that was uh, one that only... Uh, I guess libertarians would understand. Um, I feel like I ran out of excuses for the state. So once I saw the economic argument, um, once I saw that the state really didn't make things better economically uh, for people at the bottom of the economic ladder, um, I really got the principled argument that, you know, don't hit people, don't take them their stuff. But it took me a couple of years of really learning a lot about economics to be convinced of libertarianism because it wasn't exactly on the level of who will build the roads, but it was more like, you know, is this really just like, is this a really just, is capital, you know, are, are markets as capitalism a really just system? And I guess I, I saw more and more whenever there was corruption in the corporate sector, it usually led back to government. So there's usually a link there. Yeah. How did you, so were you living in the United States or like, why were you following US politics? Uh, I guess in those days, you know, we believed there was a great awakening happening. You know, there was like, there was the anti-war movement and then the the opposition to the Patriot Act. And we had similar things going on here because we participated in the war on terror and we had um, we we had new anti-terrorist laws come in that were looking totalitarian. And there was a swelling of resistance to that. So it was um so 2008 was the first time that Ron Paul ran. And we were still in the midst of that. Then, you know, um, Obama came along and all those uh, activists disappeared. So, uh, and then in 2012, there was another thing and it was, oh, it's exciting. And so it still looked, it still looked maybe up until then as if like, oh, maybe people are waking up to what's going on in the world. And um, yeah, now I think, now I'm, I'm less optimistic about that. I feel like people thought people, um, I think the sociological conditions are bad, you know, for liberty at the moment. And that doesn't mean, I mean, we'll see what happens. Do you know what I mean? I guess things can change quite quickly. They, they certainly did. They just changed 
in the wrong direction. Mm. Um, I, I hope we can re- reverse this thing, turn this ship around because you, you're absolutely right. The, you know, the Bush years when the left was anti-war and anti-surveillance state and resisting the Patriot, that was like the best they've ever been, mm. at least in my lifetime. And yeah, Obama coming in there, that was another thing that just sort of, um, it just sort of broke them. They didn't know mm. how to handle it because he's, mm. he's got the silver tongue. It's very charming. He's continuing all the, the wars that they were against, but he was doing it mm. in, a, in a very nice way or, you know, portraying yeah. it in a very yeah. nice way. And, you know, he was a, a minority. So he like checked all these boxes for him. And I think their heads just kind of uh, exploded. Yeah, and I know that people on the hard left, the radical left, were the only were actually the ones that the people who disagree with us most in economics were the ones that were still criticizing Obama for those policies, you know. But the problem is, they're saying they're they're saying, oh no, he's you know neoliberal, he's uh, part of capitalism. Obama's so bad because he's part of capitalism, not because he's a massive statist. Right. So. Yes, it's. I think the, the problem is, I, I think more and more the problem is that people aren't really prepared for life. Like, you know, they're, they're not, if people aren't, if people are coming out of school with not enough skills to get a minimum wage job, then they're not exactly going to have a favorable view of the market, right? Then, um, yeah. then there's all these, this other stuff like, um, you know, you, you need to choose your job. You need to choose where you live. You need to choose who you're married. I mean, that that sounds great from our perspective because it's, yeah, you've got the liberty to do all these things. But those freedoms are new. You know, a few hundred years ago, you were born where your parents were born. You did the job your parents did. You died where they died. You um, married who they said you were going to marry. So people have a problem problems facing their, their responsibilities and they blame the system the system and uh, the system they conflate that with capitalism in the market uh, that's my view you know that's my psychological theory as to that can explain quite a lot of of the hatred of the market they don't actually understand that the market created the wealth that they enjoy the people are suffering for their freedom not for their bondage if they were suffering from their bondage then they'd they'd want um They'd want something done about that. You know, they'd be slavery re-abolitionists. Um, the fact that they're suffering from their freedom um, means they want, maybe they want to be controlled more. And maybe this isn't happening on the conscious level. Maybe it's happening on the subconscious level. Stuff like that is interesting to me at the moment because we've come to the point where it's so hard to change people's minds. You want to wonder why are people so resistant to changing their mind? Like, why are people not open to their ideas? You know, we maybe need to answer that question first before we start spreading our ideas. Yeah. And it is, I I mean, I definitely think you're onto something there. And it is a really just a terrible thing that we're doing to to the youth of of the world sure. like, where they we give them this formula where it's like you go to the government school and then you go to college and you basically get indoctrinated further there you go into debt to do that and then you come out with basically a mortgage payment and no house and you're qualified for nothing you got some like worthless liberal arts degree or something like that and yeah then they're you know they end up being bartenders or something like that they get a job that they could have had without going to college mm. And yeah. they're, they're struggling to get by and everyone's talking about capitalism. You hear all these, mm-hmm. especially right-wing politicians talking about free market capitalism, which nothing could be further from, from the truth, but yeah, that, that gets blamed for it. Yeah. They don't understand. Yeah. And it's, uh, doing and if a, you know, uh, you're get you're underachieving for your intelligence or, you know, or, you think, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm intelligent. I should be doing better from capitalism because I'm much brainier than most of the people around me. But you're right about that. It's, it's, and people don't understand. Like if you say, if you said, oh, I'm not for government education, like that, how, try selling people on that. It's like almost everyone you speak to says they had a terrible time in school or the school should be reformed. But they're like, oh, you know, what if people, what if, if you had freedom of education, you know, what if, you know, really religious people sent their kids to 
a really religious school and indoctrinated them. And the, the, the irony is everyone's being fucking indoctrinated in a religion and the religion is called statism. The thing is, it's like there's so there, people don't cannot conceive of how amazing education would be by now if the government had stayed out of it. I mean, imagine a hundred years of the free market at work and education, learning the best techniques, the best methods, um, trial and error. One school invents a new method that's really good and then all of the other schools copy it. And, you know, another school um, produces another method in a different area and they, they cross... They, they cross-pollinate each other. Instead, as you said, we've had this mo- monolithic thing where here's the formula, you go to the government school and, and we've lost that. We, we don't know what we've lost. Yeah, and there's been, I mean, think about it. There's been like no advancement in education. We still, we all go sit in a row next to like, you know, 35, 50 other kids and somebody gets up there and they talk to us or we read a book for an hour and it's just like instruction basically. There's been almost no advancement except that they went from like those projectors where they would write on the plastic and project it up onto the wall to now we have like flat screen TVs that they, that they can use. Yeah. And it wasn't then that it wasn't the schools that invented the flat screen TV, you know, it was that all the advancements that they've got came out of the private sector. Yeah. So I think it's really sad that people don't understand the optimize the process of optimization that the market brings. Like they're like, oh, capitalism is a system of competition. It's not competition. It's the freedom to choose. You know, thank you very much, Milton Friedman. Freedom to choose. When you, most parents are going to look and see if they can get the best deal for their kids do you know what I mean when it comes to their education just the same way that people you know do research before buying a, a house or a car or or, a, or an appliance a washing machine a dishwasher people do the research so I mean people do enough of the research that you know sometimes people from poor backgrounds save up money so they can move to a better area and the only reason why they want to move into the better area is because the public school's better in that area so yeah. just imagine on, on, on the market and how cheap education could be. They could have some kids teaching younger kids. They get more contact time. They'd find all, all sorts of innovations for, for being able to provide it to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. There's a guy called James Tooley who wrote a book called The Beautiful Tree. You can watch some of his presentations on YouTube. And he was saying that he went to some of the poorest countries in the world and the kids were going to private education because their parents acknowledged that it was better than the local public school. He's talking about third world countries and they were paying very, very little to educate their kids. Um, and that this blew his mind. You know, I think he was more of a status beforehand and it introduced him to the whole world of libertarianism because he saw what was, what was possible with the free market and education. If they can do it in the most impoverished countries in the world, Lord knows what we'd have by now. And that's what we need because we need to be raising generations that are capable of meeting the challenges of life. And in that environment, I think you would be you would be producing schools that that were aimed at that, aimed at training kids to be able to meet the challenges of their life. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's just one aspect of the economy or life or anything It's just education. And if you take that same principle and apply it across the board, I mean, we should be living like the Jetsons by now with like three day work weeks and like robots doing everything for us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Lord knows how rich we would be on a, on a free market. Um, And there's another point, you know, you said education is just part of life. Before they had the minimum wage and these costly labor laws that, um, you know, sometimes, and definitely in America, you've got the health insurance contributions as well from both sides, from, from people's employees. It makes it expensive to employ people. You're not going to pay someone $15 an hour to train them because they're not making you any money. So what used to happen when it was cheaper to employ people is you'd learn on the job, you'd get on the job training, 
now everyone says experience wanted. Well, how are you meant to get any experience where everyone wants? And why? Because it's not affordable to train someone for employers. So they're continuing this. They're continuing this. I don't know who they are, but there's everything stacked against people developing competency. And as long as people are incompetent, they're going to want the government to take care of them. Like, it would be an interesting experiment to ask a progressive or a leftist, would you rather the state provided healthcare and education or that everyone, just hypothetically, would you rather everyone was so rich that even impoverished people could afford their own healthcare and education? Would you prefer, which would you prefer? (laughs) And see if they say, oh, I still think the government should provide it. Because in my opinion, they, they just don't understand the value of leaving it to the market. Yeah, that would be, I, I am going to ask somebody that question. <laughs> yeah, get back to me and let me know what happens. Maybe everyone listening to the podcast can ask one or two of their progressive friends. There you and go. Then uh, we, can, we can collect the data and see if there's any funny stories. We'll have to do our part two to the show. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's that old saying where the government sort of breaks your legs and then hands you a crutch. They're, they're doing an unbelievable job of forcing people to just sort of dig themselves into these holes that they can't get out of. They talk about making things more affordable. They're going to make housing more affordable, college more affordable. Everything that they say they want to make more affordable, what they mean is they're going to make it easier for you to go into debt to, to get it. And then you're, you're saddled with debt. You, you come out, you know, you're now 26, 27, 28 after you get all your advanced degrees, because since everybody's going to college, they've um, inflated away the, uh, you know, the, the purchasing power of a college degree. So then you have to get your doctorate or whatever. Hmm. And um, you're not in the labor force. You have no appreciable skills and yeah, the employer why, now can't afford to, you know, do anything with you. So they want two years of experience. Right. Right. That's that exactly. And you're not allowed to take an internship because that's, you know. Oh yeah. yeah you can't work uh, for free. You're not allowed yeah, to work for uh, free. raking people. So what chance do people have to get on the job training? I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if there's something wicked going on or these are just the incentives that having a state provides. Yeah, you know, I go back and forth. Some days I think it's a big conspiracy, and other days yeah. I'm just like, no, this is just sort of the natural force of everything, yes. just pushing it that yes. way. COVID has made me more open to conspiracy theories. <laughs> but I, I when I learned about, I used to be big into the. Oh, here's something that I've not talked about on podcasts before. I kind of made a distinction. Um, I was speaking to my girlfriend about this between the. The big conspiracy and that there's conspiracy, right? Conspiracy theory, you know, that word is junk, you know, because it's just used to defame anything. But what about Jeffrey Epstein, for example? Everyone knows that he didn't kill himself. So there's conspiracies, but then there's the idea of the big conspiracy that what what I call, which is they're all related and there's some force, some nefarious force guiding uh, humanity from the shadows. Now, when I was in the a kid, I was really in to the big conspiracy but when i started learning about economics i became much much less conspiratorial because i thought that economic incentives explain most of what's going on most of what's going on but um you never know you know with this stuff uh you know maybe there is a big conspiracy i don't know i find it hard to believe because I find it hard to believe that people could be so wicked or could want harm for people, you know, because I don't want harm for people. So I find it hard to put my head in the mindset of someone who does. I mean, I know some people do, but we're talking about like even most psychopaths don't actively want to harm people. They just don't care if they do. Right. Yeah. So no. to imagine, that, yeah. No, go ahead. So I don't know. So to imagine, I mean, what do they get out of it? <laughs> That's what I want to know. What do they get out of, uh, out of it? Yeah, I, 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 I struggle to get into the heads of all these sociopaths at, at, in our government as well. 
Like uh, in, in, in 1984, George Orwell says, power is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself, you know, for those who love it. You know, it's intoxicating, the intoxicating feeling of power. So maybe it's that. Maybe they just like power. Yeah, yeah, it, it certainly could be. And I'm, they're, they're getting rich off it too. There's a lot of economic incentives there as well. Yeah, I mean, but you don't get, uh, it's not necessary to put the whole world on lockdown to make lots of money. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, the whole thing confuses me. Yeah. Where do you, where do you think we're headed with the whole lockdown thing? Do you think this is going to turn around once they get these vaccinations going out or what? Yeah. Um, you know, I found it really hard to predict I heard someone say that UK might lock down till April. I don't know if that's true or not, but that sounds crazy to me. So that that's not saying, oh, you've got the vaccine. Now we don't need the lockdown. I can understand why people are skeptical about the vaccine because it was rushed out. The company doesn't have liability. And um, actually I got a, an article posted on Mises about it. Like Pfizer, the company that, um, manufactured that have a history of um, tomfoolery as well, you know, f- fraud um, and all sorts of things. Most of the big pharma companies are, do. And, and the reason why I'm, I guess, uh, it's so expensive to bring a, a, a drug that I guess once you've done, you've spent $500 million research on research, if the research doesn't turn out the results that you want, then there's a really, really, really huge financial incentive to engage in tomfoolery. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I don't know. You, I, I, I'm not going to get the vaccine. I mean, they might mandate it, but um, if it's not mandated, I'm not going to get it. I feel like I'm not in the demographic that needs it. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't like needles at the best times, but it's like people say things. I don't, I don't know. Um, I know that Jeremy Hammond, who's a libertarian, um, no, I don't even know if he is a libertarian. He's been called anti-vax for posting the government's own information on vaccinations. So he would like get posts taken down. The only thing he did was the New York Times, for example, would write an article debunking certain claims, claiming to debunk certain claims from anti-vaxxers. And he would post, here's what the New York Times or the Washington Post said. Here's what the government's own website on the risk of vaccination say. So the only thing he did was point out that the New York Times or the Washington Post were either lying or wrong. And that, that's apparently anti-vax. So if anyone has, so the thing is, this makes people more conspiratorial. Yeah. When, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the thing that I heard that was most compelling, but I, I don't, I'm not, I'm just saying what I've heard. I, I'm not, I, I don't have a position on this, was that one of the problems with vaccinations is that you're, if you ingest something through your mouth, or your nose, or even through your skin, you have your body has ways to deal with it. You can puke, you, you get the runs, you sneeze. Um, but when you you put things directly into the bloodstream, you're basically going straight to red alert. Um, you know, if there's some heavy metals or thermosol or formaldehyde or whatever things they're saying that are in um that are in the vaccines that are bad for you. Um, you know, if you if you drink if you drank a cup of Drano, you'd puke up. You, you wouldn't die. But if you injected a tiny bit of Drano into your, into your bloodstream, you'd die. So that's what they're saying. I don't know if it's true. The other thing they say is that they might set safety test the vaccines individually, but they don't like t- test, they don't measure the results of the whole 72 vaccine schedule or whatever it is. Those are the most compelling claims of the anti-vaxxers I've heard. I'm not saying that I'm married to them or anything like that i'm just sharing what i've heard so until people get like good solid answers to questions and um you know they're they're likely to continue to be skeptical because they've been given reason to be skeptical oh yeah yeah and there's been i mean there's a history of a lot of shenanigans going on with vaccines i mean in the u.s they injected a, a bunch of black dudes with syphilis telling them that they were vaccinating them i mean that actually happened. So it's like, right, okay. you don't even need to have conspiracy theories to be 
um, skeptical of some of this stuff, but what, what really freaks me out about the, the whole vaccine thing is that the government doesn't even have to mandate it. It, it could come from private companies. Like they won't let you get on their plane unless you've been yeah. vaccinated or you can't go to a concert. Ticketmaster came out with that thing. Like they're not going to let you go to a concert unless you've gotten a vaccination. Hmm. But if the vaccines are effective, then you then I don't need to be vaccinated to stop a person who's been vaccinated from getting it. <laughs> that that to me is the one of the most compelling arguments. Like if, if it works, like you've been vaccinated, what are you worried about? You know, hmm. kind of the same thing with the masks. <laughs> it's like, yeah, does your mask work if, if I don't have mine on? Logic just seems to go out the window with all this medical stuff and people just get so emotional about it. I even just like within my own family, there's been like problems with the whole COVID thing because um, my sister is pregnant and she was she wasn't like too paranoid about anything until she got pregnant. But now that she's pregnant, it's like she wouldn't even go to my uh, parents house for Thanksgiving. It was just like her and my parents. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's one of these things. It's like, again, the big conspiracy for uh, i remember this point um another argument against the big conspiracy is that um it might be quite nice to think that there's just a bunch of shady people in a room uh, planning this out and if we get rid of them then the world will be wonderful <laughs> but it might be the case that it's not it's not um a big conspiracy it's actually you know one of your neighbors is against you owning a gun another one of your neighbors is against you against gay marriage right another um one of your neighbors uh thinks that you should have a mandatory vaccination and they're all very nice to you when you meet them but it's like it's scarier to think that the control is just completely interpersonal and horizontal rather than coming from the top down. You know, it's, it's, it's scarier to think that your friends are in a way your rulers, or yeah. at least they're empowering yeah, the rulers with their ideology. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, more comforting to think that there's like this new world order thing that in theory we could take down. But if it's just yeah. everybody that's around you that hasn't been red-pilled, it's almost like uh, reminds me of the Matrix, where right. Morpheus is telling uh, Keanu Reeves that you know, like all of these people, they're the ones we're trying to to unplug from the Matrix. But at the same time, these like agents can turn into any one of them yeah. and instantly become yeah. your enemy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's that's a beautiful way of putting it, and what a wonderful me metaphor. It's like. You might be trying to save these people, but these people hate you. And I really think that people need to look at where they put their energy. See if you're uh, getting into debates with people who are not even open-minded to what you have to say. I reckon that you should probably stop because you don't have time and energy to fight with everyone. You need to find those people that are like, at least a little bit curious and say what well what about this you know even if they say well who will build the roads at least that's uh at question. least they're asking you a question yeah you know or if they're introducing you to information that you've not heard before but i don't think uh, we can we need to be very careful at how we go about this um because you know our time and is precious and uh we need to invest that in ways that are effective yeah, it, especially it hard when our to find movement's people. so small. It, it's very hard to find people that are receptive to new ideas. I don't know if you have any um, insight into that at all. Well, usually in my experiences, when you make friends with someone and they admire you personally as an individual and they like you, then they're more open-minded to what you have to say and they might be more open-minded to a uh, new perspective if, if they think you personally are affable or admirable as a human being. Um, I think usually, there, usually probably there's some events. I mean, I know people who've come around uh, and uh, say, for example, I've known feminists who've become more libertarian because 
of the trans stuff mostly, namely um, people who are biological males being allowed into women's toilets or to compete. And that, that was the beginning of the, oh, what's going on here? Because it was in their own movement. And they, then they went down a rabbit hole. I think it's, I guess we need to think about what is, like the reason why I wrote the book Universal Basic Income For and Against is because I wanted to demonstrate how the state makes the life of, how, how the state drives the, the cost of living through the roof and how people who were on low incomes would be much wealthier on a free market. I think libertarians need to focus on issues like poverty, like um, even like, well, you know, obviously Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams did quite pioneering work on like what uh, Walter Williams who died recently had a book called The State Against Blacks, which is uh, impossible to get a hold of. Like someone needs to uh, put up a PDF or like, why is that not being republished? It's so contemporary. I mean, I know it doesn't have the right conclusions, but with the right marketing, they could probably get quite a lot of people to buy it. Stuff like that. I mean, if you can produce stuff showing that the state is um, harming minorities and doing everyone at the same time, that might be, you know, uh, someone should write a book like about how the Federal Reserve screws African-Americans. Like a libertarian needs to write a book about how the the Federal Reserve screws African Americans and like maybe sell, try and sell that to all the Black Lives Matters people. You need to, yeah. You, uh, the other ones, of course, inequality. So, yeah, no, that that'd be that's not a bad idea. It it always amazes me when they're they're talking to you know the chairman of the Federal Reserve or something, and they're asking all these um uh, like black politicians will ask them like how they're going to steer monetary policy to help African Americans. And I'm just right. like, they can't do that. <laughs> I mean, they, they screw over African-Americans, but they screw over everybody at the same time. Yeah. It's not like they can just yeah. direct monetary policy like that um, on that sort of minute level. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, how people think that you could do that. Like just because it, it's obviously a, a sword that slices across everyone. So whatever they do is going to affect everyone. But um yeah, I like that idea. I'm not going to be the one to write it. I've got, I don't know enough about the Federal Reserve and I've got enough start unfinished projects, but I challenge someone to write such a book because you never know, you might get a bestseller. So what, um, what drove you to write the, the universal basic income for and against? Was it strictly because you wanted to, to show that how, the effects of the, the state on minorities and just low income? Yeah, I guess. Individuals? There was various things that I was bashing on about anyway, including how the state has increased the price of houses um, and how much richer everyone would be if they paid less for rent or on their mortgage and various other things that I'd written about at, at articles because coming from the left, I was predisposed to write about things that left people care about like poverty so or inequality, how the state like creates more inequality, for example, even though I don't think inequality of itself is necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, you don't need the Federal Reserve making the rich richer and the poor less rich, <coughs> less well off. <clears throat> so stuff like that, I was, I, I'd already written a bunch of articles on it. And then I was invited to give a talk on the UBI. And so I, I prepared my talk. And then I used the transcription of the talk as a template for starting to write the book. So I guess it let me talk about a whole bunch of stuff because the way the talk went was, right, here are some of the arguments in favor of the UBI. Here, here are the, some of the arguments against, and here's the alternative. The alternative is this. So the, the book has alternative libertarian policies that would help people on low incomes. And I thought that was the kind of thing we need to talk about. Also to piggyback on the popularity of the UBI at the moment, I, I wrote the book. So um, I thought that was a way of getting it in front of people. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I since since it first came out, I've revised it a couple of times. And uh, certainly if you, if you got the free version from my website, 
the the paperback i definitely recommend the paperback edition because it's way 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 better it includes much more information and um more up-to-date information and I, I i really optimized the text but whenever i found more arguments in favor of the ubi that i hadn't heard before i added them into the book so you'll 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 be anyone who reads it will be well-rounded like the, you'll be an expert on UBI, but you also learn a whole bunch of other things. The purpose of the book was to teach people to think economically. And because I took a whole bunch of examples and worked through it, A, then the consequences will be B, and then the consequences of that are C, D, E. I feel like people by reading it aren't just learning about UBI, they're learning about economics yeah yeah and you mentioned you know uh frederick bastiat the scene versus the unseen in there yeah 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 That's it was uh, now that you mention it 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 does kind of read like a like a talk that you were given at least the online right. version <laughs> i can definitely see awesome. i can definitely see the roots of that there nice. but yeah i was okay, um good. yeah there were a couple uh points that you had in there that were for the ubi that i hadn't really considered that I, I found pretty interesting, not, you know, compelling enough for me to change my mind on the subject, but, um, yeah. and I'd like to know which ones those were, if you remember, um, I, I think the ones where you talked about sort of, um, fixing the relationship between, uh, an employer and their, their employees, how that would sort of change that dynamic if they weren't, um, you know, afraid to leave their job and, and not have anything coming in. Um, the, the stuff about, uh, you know, women being rewarded for the, the, the work that they do, stuff like that. I, um, I hadn't really considered that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It was definitely the, uh, the shorter part of the book though. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, the thing is, it's easier to write a, a statement than to debunk a statement. So the four, the four sections bound to be shorter because I then need to debunk some of the arguments or or argue against them I try I, I tried to be as charitable as possible yeah no I think you did a really good job of presenting both sides of of the case um yeah most of the time I just hear about you know the fact that automation is coming and we're going to lose all these jobs and what are these people going to do and um yeah, I mean, I, I think you you really did a good job of of presenting both sides of the argument. It was it was very well done. And then I didn't get all the way through it because I was kind of skimming to see. Um, I only had like about forty five minutes or so to review the book. Yeah. But um, yeah, you go into how the government um, increases the the price of housing and just overall cost of living, and that's they do that with everything. It's like, instead of trying to bring the cost of things down, they just come up with another government policy or something that increases the cost. And then they figure out a way for you to go into debt to afford it. Hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a scary world we're living in. Sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, Hey man, this has been a lot of fun. I think we're, we're coming up on about a little over an hour now. I don't know how much time Great. you got. That's no, that this was perfect. We got to hit on a lot of topics that I've I don't always talk about, but I've I've been thinking about. So that was really exciting and compelling for me. Cool, cool. But yeah, this I, was I fun. hope people, I hope people will take our question out to their lefty progressive friends and say. So if you had the choice between everyone being rich enough to afford their own healthcare and education. Or the government providing healthcare and education to everyone, which, which would you prefer, so that we can see what people say? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, we and we definitely want to hear some feedback. You can um, hit me up on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. What's your uh, Twitter handle or what's your social media? Yeah, at, at Scottish Lib Pod, I think on Twitter, Scottish Liberty Podcast at Scottish Lib Pod. I'm also there as Anthony Samroff as well. I don't use Twitter that much. The best pl place to message me is on Facebook. And if you're interested in, if you like hearing what I had to say and you're interested in Scottish Liberty Podcast, you should check that out. If you don't know where to start, then um, message me on Facebook and I'll, I'll send you some of my favorite episodes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for coming on, man. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. 
and yeah. how long and, are you so how long are you in florida for uh, i'm pl- i'm gonna leave on the third of january so it looks like i'm staying until the beginning of the new year where are you headed after that are you going back to scotland yeah, I'm going. No, I'm going back to Mexico. Actually, uh-huh. I'm going to do. I'm going to do another retreat. I I, fi- I figure while things are locked down, I might as well try and be productive and, you know, working. Do, having that structure of like going to a couple of yoga classes a day, I feel like I'm becoming more healthy as a human being and more capable as a human being. And I, I can kind of write around. I can kind of write and I work online, so. I'm seeing my clients. where where in Mexico are you going to be? Yeah, I'm just going straight back to Mazinte. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity because some of my friends are still there. So even though I and also I'm on this side of the Atlantic. So even though I could go at another time if I want to catch them, eh, some of my people, I need to strike while the iron is yeah. hot. Where where is that approximately? Because I've never heard of it. It's really far. It's really south. It's south. Um. Let me see. Um, I can't remember what the name of the state is, um, but uh, it's famous because, well, it was put on the map because when turtles became a very popular dish in Mexico, it was one of the main places where turtles were farmed. So it went from being like a tiny place um, to having its own slaughterhouse and stuff like that. But then what happened was at some point, they were really worried that people were over farming turtles. So there was a blanket ban on selling tur- selling turtles in Mexico. And now, uh, in order to replace its uh, turtle industry, its uh, turtle slaughtering industry, it then became a place where they actually have a research center for environmental preservation of turtles and things like that so that's quite an interesting little story there um it's claim to fame it's in oaxaca is the name oaxaca. of the state oaxaca okay. oaxaca that just shows oaxaca. how bad my spanish is ah, that's I okay. know how to. so it's very south <laughs> okay yeah they got good mole down there what's mole have you ever had that's you've never had their oaxacan mole oh guacamole no, uh, it's just mole. What is it? It's um, it, it's a Mexican dish. It's sort of like um, it's a sauce, I guess you would say that they put on like chicken. Um, there, there's right, a bunch okay. of different versions of it. It's sort of like the um, the Mexican equivalent of like an Italian a meat sauce, like a pasta sauce or something like that. Where like every grandma has their own version of it. There's like 50 ingredients. Some are made with chocolate. Um, others are made with like tomatillos and things like that. You should try it if okay. you're down there. Oaxaca is famous I, for their mole. I never saw it. I never saw mole advertised anywhere there, but I guess uh, when I go back, uh, I'll tell my friends and they'll have to introduce me to it. Yeah. Ask around. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I got to go back for Christmas for a few days to Chicago, but I'm fine right back here. <laughs> I think I'll be back by new year's. Right. What what state did you say you were in again? I'm in Jalisco. Jalisco. Yeah. Actually, the um, just last night, the the ex governor of Jalisco was gunned down, like right down the street oh. from me here, at this um yeah this like restaurant nightclub kind of place. They, they Whoa, just went in. He, he was in the bathroom and they just popped him at like uh it's, like one thirty. It's like this a, the Godfather or something like that. Yeah. So what I mean, um. Are you on the Are you on the coast? Are, yeah, are there yeah, we're right on stuff? the coast here. Um, it's almost like directly uh, across from Guadalajara, I think. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, there's like a there's a if you pull up a map, you'll see like a bay, a big bay. Yeah. And it's right there. Okay. Okay. Great to get to know you, man. It was really fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, man. Anytime you want to come on, you're, you're more than welcome. All right. I'll let you know when I've got a burning topic. <laughs> All right. Anthony Samaroff, everybody. Been a pleasure. Check out his podcast, follow him on Twitter and hit him up on Facebook. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. That guy, 
such a nice guy. I that wasn't exactly what I had thought we were going to discuss when we initially booked him. I thought we were going to talk exclusively about his universal basic income book. So that's why I was flipping through it right before I um, started the episode. But he'd been, you know, when I talked to him and he's just like, you know, I've, I've talked that book to death. I'm a little sick of it. Let's just, you know, shoot the breeze, see what goes on. And uh, just seemed like a really nice guy. I had a great time talking to him. Um, I, I am going to start checking out his podcast a little more. I hadn't heard of it um, in, until um, Justin told me about it. So um, yeah, real cool guy great time. I will be back after Christmas with a brand new episode for you. And until then, you guys know the drill. Just keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.